Welcome back, Rail Split Nash. Uh, we are back with another episode. We're super excited. On this week's episode, we'll be talking to the author of Young Lincoln. Everybody, this is everybody's favorite rail splitter, Nick, doing the hosting gig tonight. Um, so, with me, of course, is Mary. What up, rail split Nash? I got to copy Nick tonight. <laughs> and then Jeremy is also with us. What's up? Not too much. Good to be here. And greetings, everyone in the nation that is rail splitters. I was trying to make it longer, and it didn't work. It backfired. <laughs> I was trying to go against the whole brevity thing. Dude, just embrace rail split Nash. Rail split oh. Nash. <laughs> and then we have a fourth rail splitter for this evening. Uh, Jan Jacoby, the author of Young Lincoln, who we bumped into in Springfield celebrating our 100th episode at the Lincoln, uh, Lincoln home. You were in the bookstore. So, uh, Jan, it's great to have you on. Well, thank you, Nicholas. I am an honorary rail splitter for tonight, and I'm delighted to be here. All right. So we're going to just dive right into it. So, Jan, I know you've written this book, but how do you keep you pay your bills? How do you keep the lights on? <laughs> well, you don't do it through, uh, through writing at this point. Uh, actually, uh, Michael Burlingame, who is... Uh, a Lincoln scholar whom I'm uh, lucky to know. Michael says there aren't royalties, they're peasantries. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I keep it together. I've been a middle school teacher all my life. I was a middle school principal uh, for about uh, almost 30 years and uh, in the classroom for uh, over 40. And so uh, that uh, is my livelihood. Uh, in fact, I am fortunate enough to uh, be the author of Young Lincoln, but I really uh, think of myself as a teacher who wrote a book. Outstanding. And God bless you for dealing with the middle school age level. <laughs> uh, that, to me, in my opinion, has got to be one of the toughest uh, age groups to handle. Well, if you love them, they're just wonderful. I, you know, I was in the classroom today with someone who was having a tough time, and I took him out, and I was about ready to level him. And then I realized the problem was that he didn't like two of our, I gave him two writing topics. And so I said, look, uh, you know, what would you like to write about? He said, I don't know. So I, so I came up with a third one. I said, we're reading The Wizard of Oz. And I, and I said, fairy tales are not real. Why should we read them? And he said, that's terrific. I want to do that. So I brought him back in and uh, everything was fine. So I, it was just one of those middle school moments that uh, happens very often. Yeah, and one of those small victories that it's always nice to put up on the scoreboard. <laughs> so uh, why don't you, for our listeners, kind of give us a brief synopsis of Young Lincoln before we dive into how you came about um, and kind of, you know, what you learned from doing it. So how yeah. would you give us an elevator pitch for Young Lincoln? <laughs> well, it's a, a story about his early years in uh, Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois. 
the Illinois period is the New Salem years. And uh, if you've read it, again, that's the real heart of the book. Lincoln comes to New Salem when he's uh, 22, and uh, he's, by his own phrase, a piece of floating driftwood. And then when he leaves, in uh, six years later, he's been elected to the state legislature, and he has been licensed to practice law in Illinois. And those six years are instrumental. They're very formative. I think it really has to do with four mentors that uh, helped him to learn and grow. Uh, But basically, the book is for middle school. Again, I've been a middle school teacher all my life, so... Uh, that age level in high school, uh, adults have uh, enjoyed it too. But what uh, really is different about this Lincoln book is that it's written first person, as if uh, Abe himself is uh, telling the story. And I, I really owe that to my daughter and my publisher. Uh, the book took seven years, and after about three and a half years, four years, it was going nowhere. Uh, I, had, I had friends in New York and publishing. It was rejected by everybody. It was rejected by the St. Louis publisher twice. And so the St. Louis publisher and my daughter, they were having lunch, and both of them said, you know, there's a story there, but it's not getting out. And what he needs to do is to write it first person. And that made all the difference. That's outstanding. How did you end up starting to write the book? How did this come about? Well, that's a story, too. It came about because my students at one point said, well, we know you know a lot, a lot about Lincoln. Can you recommend a book for us? And I said, uh, you know, I really can't. There are books for elementary school. They're for, uh, for high school. Uh, but there's none for middle school. And they looked at me and said, well, you should write it. <laughs> so I said, okay. And after two years, I thought I had it. And after three years, I realized I didn't. And then uh, when I switched it to first person, I thought I had it. And then the publisher said, not so fast. We're going to take it to a young adult editor. Uh, and so I allowed to my editor, and she uh, critiqued it, uh, essentially saying, well, you need a new beginning, a new ending, and these chapters need to synchronize better. And so that was six years, and then in the seventh year, it was published. Wow, good for you for sticking with it. Like, I mean, I know I'm a person that doesn't have very much patience, and but I'm I'm a writer too, so um, like I know how tough it is to kind of flesh things out. So and I've read what you know I've read Young Link, and I really appreciate what you did with it. Especially the first person makes it just that much more. Um, the story just comes alive that way. I think I appreciate that that uh, Mary and uh, what little advice I can give to any writer is that uh, I just knew there was something there. And and even in the darkest time when everybody said, forget it. Uh, and the problem with writing is you tend to feel that maybe they're right. Uh, and so, uh, but I, I said, uh, you know, I think there is something there. And then when the first person opportunity came along, it, it just, uh, the, the book uh, told the story just came alive in a way that it hadn't before. Mm-hmm. No, that's amazing. I also have read it, and I and I loved it too. I thought you did a great job. The first person, definitely, and I like the time period you chose. So, why did you land on starting early childhood? Uh, well, that's another thing is that when the first uh, draft of this first book, I really started with him in New Salem, 
So, in, in fact, I was somewhat blessed because I hadn't done Kentucky and Indiana. And when they said switch to first person, I started writing the Kentucky and Indiana period. And that's when first person really clicked for me. So when I came to write the New Salem period, it, it kind of uh, fit in in place. Uh, so that, uh, that that was part of it. How intimidating was it or scary to go first person or was it not at all? Oh, Lord. You know, that's one of those things after you've kind of climbed this mountain and you look back and, and you think, how did I ever do that? Uh, but it, it was something that I I just uh, didn't think of. And, and uh, one of my all-time favorite authors is David McCulloch. And he says that what you have to do with the material is to let it marinate. And I think because this process went on so long, uh, I, the material had really kind of woven its way into my gut and my head so that when it came time, uh, I really just, uh, it, it came out. I, I will say that the moment of which I was absolutely proudest was that when two Lincoln scholars, Michael Burlingame and Robert Bray, were uh, we were having lunch in Springfield, and they looked at each other and they said, you know, he's got the voice. And, you know, from, from those two to really offer that tribute uh it, it just uh met the world that's that's pretty awesome yeah, that's, that's some, uh, really that's really cool i just i just hope i can keep the voice for the second book that, that's <laughs> we'll tell the first one is uh, i've got a life of its own now and, and uh and again there's the writing thing is that i'm coming to writing the second one and feeling all those doubts and uh and complexities all over again no, that's amazing. I mean, that's some uh, serious Lincoln street cred when you get Burlingame and crew to give you uh, their thumbs up and approval. Yeah. So congrats uh, on that. Well, I, I appreciate it. Uh, and, and that's just uh, a, a chance thing that, that happened. And there, you know, the thing about the Lincoln uh, scholars is that they are the most welcoming group of people. I thought at first they might kind of dust me off, you know, this, this uh, fruit fly over here who's trying to do this. It was the exact opposite. They gave me encouragement, uh, good critiques, and just so much help. Uh, I can't say enough for them. No, the no. Lincoln community is, a, as we met a few, we met like, you know, a few of them in Springfield when we were there. They are so welcoming and just so accepting. And it made, I think the three of us, you know, really felt, but, you know, we had a place there and we were welcomed. Well, I'm delighted to hear that. And I, I know that I'm, I'm sure that that would happen from the kind of people they are. Yeah. Jeremy, I know we've been hogging the mic here. so Well, not at all. Actually, I was just about to jump in and ask a question about the first person, uh, very similarly to, to, to what you asked, Nick. But I, I do think that um, it's commendable the you know took took some courage for sure to to kind of step into that that first person so i i give you credit uh for that um i also enjoyed how uh how you came to writing the book it's very similar to how we came to this podcast where i really we really really wanted to listen to an abraham lincoln podcast and uh there wasn't one so so we made it yeah so i like i like how that uh kind of parallels us uh in many ways um, and you know, I, and I read a fair amount of young adult stuff just because I'm a, I'm an educator also, and I kind of like it every now and then to, to read some young adults. So I think the fact that you 
chose for your first book, his younger years, you know, kids tend to look, to like to read about people their own age or, you know, people that have similar experiences to them. So I think that's a really good way to make Lincoln relatable. So, um, and so I don't know if you could maybe talk a little bit about um, finding that um, market, I guess, that target market, like how comfortable are you in the YA world? And, and did you kind of take into account maybe what your audience wanted and how did you balance that with what you wanted to do as a, as a historian or a teller of history here? Oh, Jeremy, that's a whole set of questions there. That yeah. are, sorry. Poor hosting. Sorry. Each one is, is wonderful. Uh, I guess I, I uh, could start by saying that uh, I've, I'm, I'm kind of a snob about young adult stuff. And uh, in, in fact, uh, for a long time, I called some of it kitty litter. I mean, it, it girl world, it, 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 it panders to the worst of, of being a teenager. And actually, one of the things I'm proudest of is that Young Lincoln has won a Nautilus Award and also won a Best of Illinois History Award from the uh, state of Illinois. But the Nautilus is an award, their, their mantra is better books for a better world. And uh, they have about 30 categories, and there are golds in each of the categories, and then there are silvers, and we want a silver in middle grade fiction. Uh, and I think that what they felt was that Lincoln was someone in his uh, formative time, in his youth and, and early adulthood, who could be a real model for kids today. And, you know, we know the Saint Lincoln, but the Lincoln in that that book, uh, you know, he's got a very strained relationship with his father. Uh, he does stuff he shouldn't do with the boys. They go off on a raccoon hunt, and, and uh, it's really a very awful thing. That I'll tell you about that at some point, but it's an awful story. Uh, and he uh, he's not perfect. And, and his life is, I mean, he suffers through, uh, with the loss of his mother, his sister, and his first girlfriend. Uh, he He's alone a lot of the time. Uh, he loves his friends. Uh, so so that these, those are things, Jeremy, that did appeal to uh, young adults. The, uh, I, I would say that my, I was lucky in that I was teaching at the time I wrote this book. So I could kind of test it on my eighth grade students. And so the first draft, this was, you know, these, this, they really helped. <laughs> I was reading uh, various parts of it to them. And uh, so I said to them, uh, did you understand what this uh, was about? And one of them said, no, no, I don't understand what you're doing with Robinson Crusoe. I, I don't know the book. I don't know why it's supposed to be something that makes any difference about Lincoln. Why did you do that? And so I told him. And so he said, uh, well, if you have to explain it to me, you're going to have to explain it to everybody else. <laughs> so so I, I had critics among my kids. And I, said, and I said to myself, look, if I've written something that they can't understand, I'm the one who has to change it. It's not that they have to go read Robinson Crusoe and understand the parallels. So, um, so, so that, that really gnarly group of eighth graders, uh, now they loved the uh, Lincoln's father telling the story of how his, his father was killed by an Indian. They loved the raccoon hunt. They loved the wrestling match with Jack Armstrong. They loved a lot of stuff. And, and, but what was good to see was that when I switched to first person, 
and Abe was reflective and uh, and really thinking about solitude and why it was important for him. I, they they really were with me in that. So the whole process of writing it uh, was, uh, as I say, I'm a teacher who wrote a book, but I was favored in the writing process by having uh, the critics who were better than any uh, professional critic you ever could have had. Yeah, kids will tell you how they think, unfiltered a lot of times, which is a blessing in a lot of ways. So um, I think one of the things that you were talking about that I really enjoyed was through the first person narrative, you were able to really kind of touch on, you know, Lincoln's melancholy or like his depression, you know, in, in these down moments, which I felt was done very well, very powerful. And I, I can imagine that a young teenager um, can relate to that. So I thought you really did a good job with that. And I really liked how you did it um, to the point where you weren't like stressing on it. It was just the right amount. And, and it kind of, I thought you did it very well. Well, I, I really appreciate it. You know, I've got a copy of the book right here. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have a very short passage that would, would illustrate that. Sometimes, this is when he's about seven or eight years old, sometimes I felt sad myself. I would walk, walk over the hills, which were made out of limestone and covered with sassafras, redbud, and sycamore trees. I walked down into the valley where Knob Creek trickled toward the rolling Fork River. Most times I would hear the cardinals calling cheer, cheer, or wicker, wicker to each other and see red darts diving through the thick green leaves. The sun dappled through the tops of the trees and onto the darker pockets of brush below. When the trail dipped down, it might lead to a woodland creek. The cold water trickled through my toes and glittered like silver in the morning sun. The sadness left, and I could believe I was in that garden in the Bible. So there's a lot you do with a passage like that. It's obviously got the allusion to the Garden of Eden, but it uh, it also emphasizes that when he felt this way, particularly when he was young, uh, he he walked uh, by himself out in the wonderful, uh, and you're out in the frontier, and it's it's the beauty of nature, and and he found it to be very helpful to understand his sadness. And I yeah. really appreciated you writing that into the book. Um, you know, like because I think as I mean for me anyway, studying Lincoln, like it's always the adult Lincoln and there was never when I was growing up, never the Lincoln who was seven years old, never the Lincoln who was a teenager in his like yeah, being a young adult. So that's one reason I appreciated this book, but also just that, you know, you show that he probably had the melancholy um, from a very early age, which was really, I think he just like, you've made him so relatable even to today's youth. Um, even though he's back, you know, in the like you know eighteen early eighteen hundreds, which I think is is really amazing. He's very, still very relatable, which just shows how timeless Lincoln is. It's extraordinary, uh, and the beauty of Lincoln, as you all know, is that again, it's layers of an onion. You peel, you peel, you peel, you peel, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper. And uh, there's still levels there that you have to kind of unpack so uh and yes mary the uh, the themes in that book uh, for his youth are ones that uh i know uh, uh, that, that uh, 
these the young people appreciate. I when Nicholas and, and you you were there too mm-hmm. in the Lincoln Home. Yeah. Uh, when I'm signing a book for uh, each person who buys it, I, I almost find that a very personal experience. I love selling to uh, up there at the Lincoln Home because you, you, people just listen and you talk, and the young people there and in New Salem uh, where I've been as well. Uh, I give them my email at the back of the book. And I've had so many wonderful emails. There, there was uh, a uh, a boy uh, from I don't know somewhere. I think he was actually from Wisconsin, and he wrote and said the ending is so so sad. And then I had a girl from Japan who wrote and said I loved the ending. <laughs> <laughs> so just having those that feedback from from readers, I'd say. You know, I've probably got about 50 of those emails, uh, and each one is a, is a treasure. There was a girl who wrote, uh, she was nine years old, and she wrote and said, I love it. And she said, well, I have a novel. W- would you be willing to take a look at it? And it was it was nine pages. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, I read it and gave some encouragement. Yeah, yeah I think that, that for young people especially, um, you know, it's hard to, to see what would, what's going to happen, but – just from my own perspective, um, I th- this is exactly the kind of book that I think I would have wanted and needed and would have latched onto. Um, I have a, like one of my prized possessions here is a, a book that my grandmother gave me that was just in her house. It was published in 1932, but it's called Abe Lincoln Frontier Boy. Uh, it's Who's not very by? good. Yeah, it's it's not it's not good. But well, who's, uh, it who's it by? Uh, Augusta Stevenson is the author. It was part of a series, I guess, or. The inside cover says the childhood of famous American series. So it's yeah. interesting from like a, how did they, how did kind of like, how did your book look in 1932? I think it's very kind of, you know, kind of has that feel to it. Um, so it doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't kind of have the, I mean, the audience, I guess is a little bit different, but like that was very important to me when I was about the same age as the students who are your target audience. So I always kind of, I was kind of thinking about that when I was preparing for the show, like there's kids out there who are reading that book who may not reach out to you, but you know, down the road, they may end up teaching history or just being a Lincoln enthusiast or telling their children about Abraham Lincoln and um, using the, using that book. So I think that that's a really, it's a really good gift. I think that, that you've given by, by selecting a younger audience. Well, thanks again. And, and it's part of my mission as a teacher uh, to keep history alive, to keep Lincoln alive. And uh, this whole uh, thing, although started seven or eight years and nine years ago now has been such an adventure uh and uh, every last bit of it just being with you guys tonight is a wonderful part of it no that is outstanding now i know it's a novel but it's based on uh obviously it's a novel in a sense where you're kind of making up a lot of the dialogue or coming up with the dialogue but it's also based on stuff that happened so what type of research went into this Good question. Uh, this part of Lincoln's life, your basic uh, source is Herndon's uh, collection of materials uh, that when Lincoln died, uh, Wave Herndon, Billy Herndon, his third law partner, uh, went around to Kentucky, Indiana, and Illinois and interviewed everybody who had known Lincoln. And uh, so they, uh, this huge amount of material. Herndon was notoriously disorganized, but 
Uh, he did have a partner who eventually pulled it into a biography, but it, it sat in the Library of Congress for a long time and part of it in the Huntington Library in California. And we really owe it to two Lincoln scholars, Douglas Wilson and Rodney Davis at the Lincoln Center uh, Studies Center in uh, at Knox College in Galesburg. And they pulled together about a 700-page book called Herndon's Informants. Now, Doug Wilson himself will tell you that uh, this is reminiscence. It was collected 30 years after these people had uh, known Lincoln, uh, and we know that memory pro- plays tricks. But uh, Doug Wilson will tell you that if you find corroborative uh, stories, uh, then you've probably got something that's reliable. So I use the ones that are corroborated. They're they are, uh, I think, pretty standard stories of his uh, childhood and young adulthood. But you're right, uh, Nichols. I did the dialogue. I, in fact, I, again, I'm a teacher or a book. I had no idea that I could write dialogue, but but it, that part just fell in place too. And so, uh, but the the real fiction here is is that anybody can get inside Lincoln's brain and portray to uh, an audience that uh, that this is uh, his life. Uh, so. You know that that's the that's the fictional part. The research is solid, uh, Douglas. When you deal with Douglas Wilson, Michael Burlingame, you're dealing with the gold standard of Lincoln research, and I'm lucky. You know, I wrote something at the very end, which is which I really it was kind of in the acknowledgments, and uh, it said, uh, uh, "I've been reading and writing about Lincoln for almost thirty years." I stand on the shoulders of giants. I am indebted to them all. If my poor power to add or detract contributes to a student's enjoyment and understanding of our greatest president, it comes not so much from me as it does from the many scholars and writers upon whom I have relied. Uh, and, and I'd have to say that. Uh, it, they, when, you, when I had the opportunity I had to write this is something that probably somebody didn't have in 1932. The scholarship that's been done, the opportunities that we all have. I was up in the Abraham Lincoln Library today in Springfield, and all those uh, newspapers are on microfilm, and you can get them on your computer as well. But uh, we have treasures of research and uh, that scholars have done for us now. No, I, and yeah, and I loved how you added, included that in the book too. Kind of, you had the footnotes at the end of it as well. Um, so, I really appreciate, you know, kind of being a history teacher myself. You know, you kind of appreciate those little things. Oh, it's it's very important. And in fact, I guess it was Mary was saying, or maybe it was Jeremy, that um, in, the book, in the book, there are two or three, well, actually several places where I did use what Lincoln said himself. And, and, I, and I noted that. I wanted people to know this wasn't something I wrote but what Lincoln had actually said himself, and that's in, in the footnotes. But I wrote in the uh, knowledge bars and the, in the notes on the book that I wouldn't have wanted to doctor that somehow or try and paraphrase it or something. I mean, it, it, he uh, says at one point, uh, my uh, program is like the old woman's dance. <laughs> you just can't. There's a, it's interesting that one of the ones in there is uh, Lincoln says at, at some point, uh, that and we've well, people didn't Lincoln have heard this one forever. It's like he was called two faced so often, and so his reply at some point was, "Well, if I had two faces, do you think I'd be wearing this one?" 
<laughs> so, and I'm, I was sure that Stephen Douglas had said that in the debates, uh, because it's perfect, because Douglas called him two-faced all the time. I went through those debate transcripts. I could not find that thing. I went down rabbit hole after rabbit hole on the internet, and finally one of them said, spurious, which means, of course, not real, uh, made up. So so I said to Michael Burling, I said, Michael, is a, you know, can you find a uh, attribution on this? And he said, Jan, I'd love to, but I haven't yet. But he said, since you're writing fiction, you can include it. <laughs> so, so it's in there. It, it's in there. But it's, I mean, it's something, it's like Churchill, you know, all the stuff is stuff that Churchill clearly could have said. And so this is one I'm sure that Lincoln could well have said. No, yeah. it, we've talked about that many times too with Christian, all the supposed Lincoln quotes that are out there or the fun stuff. But yeah, you know what? I like that you included it. And in mm-hmm. young Lincoln, he did say it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll 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 take it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so seven years of doing research, writing a book. How did this kind of change your view of Lincoln, or did you maybe what did you learn that you didn't already know diving into this? I think that uh, all those different uh, parts of him that I that I dug uh, deep into, but I think Mary has it. I think I was really. Uh, interested in that there are there are moments when that depression appears early, and that's the testament of people who knew him. Uh, one of the things from Herndon's informants about when he was young. So, so that part, uh, and I want to be Lincoln and depression is a real tough one. You guys should probably take that on at some point because some people say it's clinical depression, and then other scholars say, well, how can you prove that? I mean, we're psychoanalyzing somebody who's not here. Uh, I, I think that what, what seems to be the operative word is melancholy and, and sadness. And it may well come from his mother, who uh, seemed at, at times to uh, be that way herself. Uh, but I think that in the young Lincoln, I was surprised that that, that uh, thread is something that you can find. Yeah, and I think it's important to... Uh, to note that because it's so often overlooked in young people, especially younger than teenagers, that, that they may have that melancholy or depression or whatever you want to call it. So um, I think it's valuable for students, kids, young people to see that in what they're reading and say like, man, I'm just like Abraham Lincoln in, or in some ways. So, And a different kind of Abraham Lincoln to make an uh, analogy. Uh, it's not George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. It's not Abe, the uh, honest Abe, well, although that's part of it, but it's Abe. It's struggling Abe. It's uh, conflicted Abe. It's uh, it's complex Abe trying to put, sense already from his early time that he has these uh, different parts of his personality. You know, another thing I think I'll, I'll come on this one pretty strong to you. Uh, the central question about Lincoln that I have been wrestling with all the time I've, I've read about him is how does someone, well, you, you bring him to Washington uh, and he has a presidency that falls apart right in front of him because Fort Sumter is there. I think when he was elected, uh, he was hopeful that this somehow would not burst down into war. He might have a Western expansion kind of presidency, but of course it doesn't. So, so how does someone like Lincoln 
deal with all the emotional stress of, of the war, of feeling responsible for the blood that is shed in the war, and all, all that. I, I mean, the stress is just unimaginable. And now get this, someone without a close emotional relationship to help him deal with it. Uh, he has, uh, his, his closest friend, Joshua Speed, is back in Kentucky. They split apart over slavery. Uh, his, he's got the two secretaries, John Hay and John Nicolay, but they're younger. Uh, you've got, he's got uh, uh, Seward, but uh, as I say on this one, uh, when Lincoln went over to Seward's house late in the evening and sat by the fireplace and they were like two old pals talking together, Remember, it was Seward who was drinking the brandy, not Lincoln. Lincoln was very guarded about saying anything to anybody as president. And so there is a man who is emotionally isolated. And how does that person bear uh, George Saunders in Lincoln and the Bardo has really pegged it and nailed it about his uh, emotional almost collapse when Willie died. He says at one point, I expected to, for people to see me lynch uh, or hanging from the nearest lamppost in, in Washington during the war. So, so what I wanted to do was track back into the youth and see, well, I'll tell you why I think he survives. And that's because he is emotionally, uh, I don't have to go off in uh, education here. Howard Gardner has eight intelligences. Uh, but the two that I am most struck by are interpersonal intelligence and intrapersonal intelligence. Intrapersonal intelligence is how you get along with yourself. And Lincoln has that in spades. And he has it early. It doesn't come when he's, uh, you know, elected president. So, and in fact, he's a man who, or a person who understands the need we all have for solitude. Those walks in the woods, those moments when, when he just is processing, processing, reflecting. But, you know, he's back there also telling stories, entertaining people. So all this is packaged into one person. So, um, but, but to me, who is this young man emotionally? And how does he start? Where are those threads that will come up eventually into the presidencies and, uh, and help him to deal with it? Uh, Shelby Foote uh, in Ken Burns' uh, TV uh, uh, Civil War series said at one point about Lincoln. He said he had a very mysterious quality. He could he would be outside himself, uh, looking at himself as if he were totally uh, removed from himself. And I think he can do that. I think he. It's not like he's in a parallel zone of some kind, but he is able to understand the emotions that he's feeling, and accept them, deal with them, and get on with the business of saving the union. I would completely agree with that. that he'd, he'd have to be that way, you know, to to deal with it. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, you know, um, I think you've probably responded differently to different stress. I think the stress of the war and the, the weight of the office had a different impact than the stress of losing his sons, um, the stress of his marriage, perhaps. Um, and I think that he kind of gravitated toward the, the professional ambition kind of laden, um, stress. And as you know, so I've read a couple of people who think that, that that was kind of his coping mechanism was to bury himself in work. 
um, and, and that what what a lot of folks look at as ambition. And of course, it was it was ambition too, but it was also largely um, kind of suppression of of those emotions. You know, and because we're also talking about an era where um, there's no therapy, there's no medication for antidepressant, there's no. Um, I mean, there's not even really a tolerance for grieving outside of a very contained space. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's really difficult through our 2019 eyes to, to say, how did he handle that grief? Cause I'm sure it impacted him much like it would impact any of us who may lose a child or who have lost a child. Um, but it was a little more common then, but I still think it probably impacted him the same way. So I think that ambition is also his coping mechanism in many ways. And, and too, like the, the amount of frustration that he had to, to deal with um, from the civil war side of things, you know, for example, after Gettysburg, when Meade does not pursue Lee, Lincoln goes and writes this letter that he never sends. Right, right. And just, you know, to know that, like, that he's writing this and it's almost like he's getting his frustrations out and he recognizes that, you know, he goes back and reads it a few days later and he, he, he thinks, I can't send this because, and I think he put himself in Meade's shoes to see what was actually going on. And there was probably still some frustration there, but he had to see things from Meade's perspective. And that's another thing that's really amazing about Lincoln is this, like this empathy that he also carried with him too, um, as a person that, um, is very much part of who he is. And then throw in, uh, that it is basically low ego leadership. Yes. Which is just the most remarkable thing mm-hmm. of all. Uh, Bob Bray said at one point that in, in, uh, the meetings that they had during the war, Lincoln checked his ego at the door. And, and that's why he was a successful leader. Mm-hmm. How to have that again. You know, it's interesting. This is an interesting one I'll, I'll give to you too. I have a friend who's working on leadership. Uh, all leaders are working on leadership, but we were talking about Lincoln and, and I said, you know, I'm interested also in Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And I, I was interested that if you transfer Lincoln to having managed the depression and the war, I don't know that he's the right person for that. And if you put FDR in to do the Civil War, I don't think he's the right one for that. The, the knock on Roosevelt was he was a first-class, uh, second-class intellect, a first-class temperament. So Lincoln is that first-class intellect that's needed there. I mean, you need somebody to really understand what the country is going through. Now, with Roosevelt, uh, you in the New Deal, I think you're in somebody who's pulling a lot of the best advice you can get in and seeing what works and what doesn't. But when you get to the war, I think it takes a tremendous amount of personal uh, leadership to do that. But, but it's interesting to think about placing those people in different situations. No, yeah, I think... I, I like comparing the two of them too, because um, Roosevelt uh, kind of has become this champion for for the impoverished and you know the the lower class. Yet he came from fairly extreme wealth, and yeah. Lincoln's kind of the opposite, where he came from nothing, 
and then was kind of navigating this world of Washington that's, you know, got a lot of the elite and a lot of, you know, money. And he's kind of part, a lot of his navigation of the war was negotiating through a lot of that stuff, um, political appointments and keeping the money happy um, and keeping the economy going. So I, I think it's interesting how both of those two figures kind of ended up really mastering the, the office to help folks that were not really like them, uh, at least where they came from. And both the situation and the wars probably killed both of them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Nobody knows how long Lincoln would have lived after. the. Uh, but when you see, of course, that picture in, in 1860 and then the Gardner picture two weeks before he, he dies, I mean, he just looks like he's gone. Mm-hmm. I think you just gave us a new episode topic. FDR, <laughs> Lincoln, the swap. So, um, once we hit 200 we're going to be needing ideas so we appreciate that (laughs) Um, one other thing I liked about the book I loved how you organized your chapters and I think it's kind of a cool way that you did it each chapter kind of starts with a blurb can you kind of tell us our listeners where you got those from exactly yeah they are from poetry that Lincoln wrote himself Nicholas the the basic one is my childhood's home i see again he wrote that when he visited indiana uh, i think in the middle of the 1840s uh, somewhere there uh and he went to his mother's grave and and so that one is very poignant <clears throat> another one is is one verse is from the bear hunt which is a poem lincoln was a reasonably good poet uh, believe it or not and uh, surprisingly good in fact and then one is the rhyme that was in his uh, arithmetic book. But those are all, that again, is are Lincoln's words uh, in, in the story. Yeah, it's just those little touches that I enjoy that you have in the book um, that just kind of, you know, they add up, add up, and they really mm-hmm. turn it into something good. And I, and I think the good thing about this that you really did well, it's like, it's like those good, like, Pixar movies. There's something <laughs> for kids but there's also something for adults to take away from this, which means you're not, you know, you're giving these young readers the respect that they deserve, that they can understand and handle this stuff, which I think you've really done a great way. And, and I applaud you on that. Well, thanks. And that's to Jeremy. I should say, Jeremy, thank you for your question about young adult literature. Uh, mean, meanwhile, uh, or I should say there is some first rate young adult literature, some wonderful writers, Lori House Anderson is one. She has a series about the Revolutionary War. There are any number of, of one, wonderful, and even the classics. I mean, my all-time favorite book has got to be The Wind in the Willows. <laughs> I mean, in fact, if you don't think Trump is toad, <laughs> I wrote an article about that for the post is back, Trump as toad, and they didn't publish it. <laughs> I think the one thing I liked about getting back to what Nick said about the, the like a Pixar movie that there's there's stuff in it for for the younger crowd, but there's stuff in it for adults. Um, there's there's things in it, um, you know, somebody who's been reading about Lincoln now for I mean, I've been studying him for like 30 years. Um, oh. <laughs> um, it's these little things that they're like Easter eggs in there <laughs> that it's yeah. like an inside joke almost. But. As as Nick said, you're you're not like you're still on that level with the young adults that they're going to learn something with it. It's still respectful, but for like for me, 
Um, and I think I've talked to one other person that uh, she's been studying Lincoln for a very long time. She loved this book, too. Oh. And just like, it's kind of like these little Easter eggs, like, oh, yeah, that, like that. I remember that. And you know, it, it's just, it. it's so, um, I felt immersed in the world of Lincoln and like I was on this journey with him when I read it, which I really appreciated. Oh, you're, you're kind to say that. I And I would say, Mary, that now this is a dangerous phrase, but as I came to write this book, I wanted to be consciously literary. Now, that's very dangerous for a writer because you, if you start doing that, you end up being pretentious and, and it can destroy what you're trying to do. But I did want the, the, uh, the metaphor of Lincoln as Telemachus. I really I meant that I to you very easily because he, his teacher was Mentor Graham. So he says, where did your name come from? And Mentor says, well, have you read the Odyssey? Oh, you know, I remember it from school. And he takes it through. And, and, and then Lincoln says at one point, uh, what's the relationship between Telemachus and Odysseus? And that's a father-son relationship. So again, in those little places, you could, but that's what I meant about being consciously there. And again, the Shakespeare references when Lincoln and Kelso are on the banks of the Sangamon. You know, when you do something like this, one thing that was just so, I would go up to New Salem time after time after time. And I sat on the banks of the Sangamon River trying to listen to Lincoln talking to Jack Kelso. And that's how that scene came in. But in the middle of it, at one point, a, a blue heron plopped right in front of me. It just oh, plopped in. Wow. And I looked at that thing and I said, if that isn't Abraham Lincoln, I don't know what is. I, and the feathers were all mussed on top. It was lanky. Length, length was in its uh, uh, legs and it stooped over and it was solid. It was a solitary heron. So that's how that uh, was born. But. Uh, so, uh, but all those things, you're right, Mary. I, again, I would say if a writer tries to be overly conscious of those kinds of things, it won't work. Mm-hmm. If, but if they ease in uh, from the, the, the storytelling itself, then, then it will. Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe was a natural for it. He's on an island by himself. Uh, he has to, he's, had, he's on the island because he thinks... He sinned against his father, uh, didn't take his father's advice. So, so the, the, those are parallels, too. Yeah, I think another important aspect of Lincoln as a young person, I think, that is different. It kind of makes him not unique, but certainly um, not uncommon, is that he was a reader at a very young age. So I like how this is a book for young people. And you can kind of say, like, Lincoln was a reader, you know, and this book is for people, young people who like to read as well. So I think that's kind of cool, too. Oh, you're right. And then that one, when I signed the book for uh, and up at uh, Lincoln Home, I will say to the 10 or 12 year old, I, I will say, I have one question for you. Are you a reader? And, and when they say, yes, I write, uh, I write in a reader, exclamation point, Abraham Lincoln would be proud of you. Oh, nice. Uh-huh. I think that's true. I, I think it really is. And there was actually another boy in New Salem who not only was a reader, but he bought this book out of his own pocket. His mother wouldn't buy it. And so she said, well, use your birthday money. And he said, I'm going to do it. So he bought it. And I said, Abraham Lincoln will be doubly proud of you. Book yourself. (laughs) No, that's that's great. I mean, that's why the book's important. It's making those connections, like Jeremy said earlier. And 
You're helping mold future historians, future Lincoln novice, and most importantly, future rail splitter listeners. Oh, <laughs> so, is it time for my Lincoln story or what is the Lincoln moment? Yeah, before we get to that, though, where can somebody purchase Young Lincoln if they're interested in reading it? Oh, thank you, Nicholas. Well, uh, the Lincoln Home in Springfield, uh, the Prairie Archives uh, has it there. The uh, museum shop will have the second printing when that comes in. Uh, it's um, it basically, I think it's many Barnes and Noble, they can order. But there, of course, there is uh, Amazon that, that uh, it's on there if, if all else fails. Uh, but the Lincoln Home is a one, those people have been so kind to me. So if people do buy at the Lincoln Home, I'd be thrilled. Um, and timetable on the second book? Oh, here we go. <laughs> second, I'm going to put myself onto a very ambitious schedule here. I'm doing the concept and the research, and I'm, I'm, that's why I was in the library today. I'm really going to work to have that done by January 1st. And then I'm going to write for six months, and I really think on this one that I can do it in six months, get it to the editor or over the summer, uh, take the edits back at the end of the summer, redo those, and then the book takes three or four months to get ready. But I, the goal here is to have it ready for Lincoln's birthday, 2021. Uh, now, this is more doable because we actually thought initially of a trilogy, and the second one was going to be Lincoln and Springfield. And so the publisher said, well, how long do you think it will be? And I said, oh, it's got to be 400 pages. And he nearly fainted and said, no, that doesn't work. The young adults won't do that. So he said, can you slice it? So it worked perfectly. When Lincoln gets there in 1837 and his term in Congress, 1849, that will be the, this, this book I'm working on. And then we'll do a second one for the 1850s. And uh, Bob Bray and Michael Brewing Games said that's a good plan because you'll need a full book for the 1850s itself. Uh, actually, when I was in uh, Lincoln Home, and, and somebody was saying, are you going to write another one? So I said, well, I'm writing another one that will be two. And how will, and President, I said, well, maybe two more. And he said, oh, it'll be the Harry Potter of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll see. So, so again, I can't uh, thank all the people who've helped me all the way through. Uh, and so um, I, I think I'll be able to do that. So when we talked yesterday, I told you about our This Week in Lincoln segment. And you told me you have a great story to uh, to bring for this. So we're going to turn it over to you. This Week in Lincoln, brought to us by the young Lincoln, Lincoln author, Jan Jacoby himself. Well, Nicholas told me that this was supposed to be, maybe I was fantasizing and saw Abraham Lincoln sitting on the bench outside or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I have one from real life that is, I think, a good story. And what it is is that uh, the C-SPAN, about gosh, it's got to be 20 odd years, it was my 50th birthday, so it was maybe 25 years ago, and they uh, did a reenactment of the Lincoln-Douglas debates in each of the uh, debate locations. And so my wife, uh, actually it was just before my uh, 50th birthday, and my wife, unbeknownst to me, had gone to a uh, costume shop and had uh, got a costume for me to look like Abe. I was a tall, I was a, a top hat and a, and the era the, the period dress. And she 
or herself actually dressed up kind of as Mary Lincoln. So, uh, and uh, now the Alton C-SPAN had said that if you came in period dress, you could sit in the first three rows of this debate site. So we uh, went to Alton uh, and we were uh, parked and, and then we were walking to the debate site and there was this huge crowd of people across the street and they were uh, behind and getting autographs from the actor who was playing Stephen Douglas. And they took one look at Ginger and me and this huge crowd, it must have been a couple hundred people, rushed over across the street and surrounded me and said, can we have your autograph? And I, for a moment I was thinking, oh my goodness, I'm Abe himself. And so, but what happened is I had to say, I'm not uh, playing. I'm not uh, the, per- the actor doing Lincoln today. It's you, you know it's somebody else. So they all melted away, except for one child, always a child, a ten year old, said, "Well, can I have your autograph anyway?" <laughs> so, so that was my link. That was my one moment of fame there that that I actually was visualized by people to be Abe. So does that qualify? That sure does. Definitely. <laughs> And that's why you were able to do the first person, Abe, in your book. (laughs) (laughs) That moment. That moment on. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you coming on to our show so much. We are so happy that we bumped into you down in Springfield for our 100th episode that weekend. We were down there. Um, So um, to our listeners, Young Lincoln, um, I can't, uh, you know, suggest it enough. It really is a great book. Um, even if you don't have kids, you'll definitely find something in there to enjoy. Um, Jan, anything else you would like to say before we sign off here? Well, to Nicholas, thank you for uh, putting out with my technology collection. <laughs> Nicholas really had to work on it. I put my daughter, my saving daughter, to work with Nicholas to get, get me on. Uh, and uh, so, Nicholas, to you and Mary, to you, that wonderful time that we had at the Lincoln Home and Jeremy. Uh, Thank you so much for your uh, thoughtful questions, all three of you. Um, I will have to say, I've I've done a lot of this, but this is without doubt the best one. You guys were very, very well prepared. You understood what I tried to do in the book. And uh, you are Lincoln uh, people. And and, uh, it is a very special group of people. And they are warm, welcoming, kind, thoughtful just like Abe himself. So I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. It took thank us 105 you. episodes to get to this point. So. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. Well, um, to everybody listen, thank you. And to Jan, thank you once again. And we're signing off here. And remember, with the malice towards none, with charity for all. <laughs>